0: Hello, this is Brad Schwartz, Professor and Chairman of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the latest release in our podcast series. Each month, we will be presenting a current events topic of interest to our listeners. Hello, and welcome to this uh, episode of the podcast for the Endo Society. Today, we have uh, Dr. Thomas Taieh, the consultant urologist at the University Hospital in Ghent, Belgium. He also sits on the European Association of Urology Guidelines panel for stones. And uh, Dr. Tayi, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your time and your expertise. Thanks. Well, One of the reasons I, I, I wanted you to, to come join us was I learned uh, from you, actually, that the uh, EAU updates their their guidelines. They try to do it yearly, and they, they succeed mostly to do it every couple years. And because of the, the really explosion in ureteroscopy and dusting and things like that, in my own mind, I'm trying to sort out, there's going to have to be some changes to the guidelines of the AUA and EAU at some point, uh, looking at the larger stones and maybe releasing some of their grip on Percutaneous, uh, you know, mandatory percutaneous surgery for the larger stones and so on. I just wanted to touch on uh, several points. Number one, what is your overall thought? Are are there a lot of changes uh, uh, going on or coming up for the guidelines for treating stones uh, because of the advent of the technological advances we've enjoyed?
1: That's a great question, Brad. Thanks. Well, we do have updates every two years currently, and we do see a lot of changes in technology, new lasers, new access sheets, disposable scopes, you name it. But the way we develop our guidelines is based on a very strict uh, regimen. We do a systematic review to look at the data, and we have certain criteria which papers we will include in our search. Or we want from our search and we will review before identifying them to go into the guidelines yes or no. We're quite strict with that so anything that's not an RCT or not a systematic review will most likely not be retained from that systematic review. That makes uh, for a certain delay in including technologies into the guidelines because by the time that we have sufficient adequate RCTs or or a well-developed, well-done systematic review, the technology has been uh, around for, let's say, three, four, maybe even five years before we can include it as a strong recommendation in the guidelines. You're absolutely right uh, with the the new changes in flexible radioscopy, new uh, suction access sheets, uh, new lasers, uh, more efficient dusting, and so on. There's definitely some voices saying that flexible rheumatoidoscopy is gaining ground and PCNL may be losing some ground. But if you look at the guidelines for stone from the EAU, what we see is that basically anything goes for any stone uh, if it's in the kidney. Um, So if we're really losing ground with PCNL, I'm not so sure. Uh, But by the time that we see whether or not this makes a big change, uh, we'll be a few years down the road.
0: Perfect. So let's start with maybe a couple of fundamental questions. Uh, we talk about stone size. Uh, that is clearly one of the parameters we use for uh, guidelines uh, concerning the treatments of stones. What uh, There's a, a lot of discussion, a lot of talk about volumetric analysis as opposed to greatest linear distance. Wanted to see what the panel and, and you were thinking about uh, Inserting any language regarding volume or measurement, stone measurements as a guide for treatment?
1: That's a very, very good question. And that's actually when I just started, even before I started with the guidelines, that was one thing that I asked the guidelines to evaluate. And that resulted in a systematic review that we just done. And I'm currently finishing the, the paper and sending it to all the co authors. Because you're right, volume may be more important than than stone size, but in clinical practice we're all using stone size. It's a one centimeter stone, it's a two centimeter stone, but a two centimeter stone can have a seriously different volume if it's a narrow or a wide stone, and if it's a complexly shaped stone, and so on. And volume may be better predictor, so that's why we did the systematic review. Because it's not published yet, and like I said, we do have strict rules. Uh, We can't put it in the guidelines just yet, although we already do have the result. What's interesting is volume has been hinted as a better predictor of the outcomes or a more, more correct representation of the stone for over a decade. And there has been quite a bit of literature on it. But what we need is comparative data. Studies that report both size and volume, or even stone area, and compare the accuracy of that variable for the outcomes. And we went to all the data, we did a good systematic review, and we identified twenty-four papers. And that's a lot more than I thought we had. Twenty-four papers looking at flexible ureteroscopy, semi-rigid ureteroscopy, PCNL, or shockwave lithotripsy. So any intervention for stone, comparing at least two uh, stone burden measures. What we identified is yes, stone volume is a better predictor of stone free rate than stone size. But what I didn't uh, anticipate is that it's mainly for flexible ureteroscopy and shock wave lithotripsy, and not so much for PCNL. I thought PCNL there are bigger stones, it's going to make a bigger difference, more complex stones. But probably because there are so many more variables coming into play with PCNL, stone size itself is actually as good as a predictor uh, of the outcomes as volume, as a solitaire predictor, an independent predictor, so to speak. But for flexible rhetorography and EWL, we do see that volume is a better predictor than stone size. And this will be in the next guidelines, but not in this guidelines. And that's what we see right now. We don't have sufficient data yet to provide us with new cutoffs. Because right now we say a one centimeter stone, you do this, a two centimeter stone, you do that. But what we need is the same kind of cutoff for volume. And we don't have sufficient data yet to support any cutoff there. Because that is, if you look at a paper by group A, that is the cutoff in that surgeon's hands, right? And we need a lot more data, a lot more people reporting on multiple different sizes before we can come with a cutoff. So that's where we are right now. So, at volume, yes, down the line for sure, but we need the cutoffs.
0: Let me ask you you mentioned that for PCNL, the volume may be less important. Did you break that down further, even into mini PCNL versus standard PCNL? Does the size of the perk matter?
1: Good question. We don't have that data. No, we didn't really go into that granularity of the data. Okay. As uh, so we also had semi rigid and flexible reader ask together. Yeah we didn't have sufficient data to to break it down even more.
0: Going a little further into the weeds on that, um, we talk about stone size. We do talk about lower pole stones might influence the uh, selection of treatment. Any further discussion about location or the influence of stone hardness, looking at Hounsfield units, looking at history of uric acid stones, et cetera? Are there are the guidelines going to really dig deeper down into those types of variables or you don't foresee that happening?
1: Well, currently there's already quite a bit of literature out on that, especially on the lower pole. I think there's been five or six minute analyses in the last three years looking at shockwave versus flexible versus mini-PCNL. And they all quite say the same thing. That Mini-PCNL has a better stone-free rate, shockwave lithotripsy has better complication rate. And it really depends on what you discuss with your patients. So I don't think that there's anything shortly coming that will change that, except for maybe a bendable suction access sheets that may increase the stone free rate for those entities, the lower pole stones with flexible ureteroscopy, And that may come into the realm of the same success rate of many PCNL with a similar complication rate, I think. Sure. For the hardness, we've been looking at hardness, I think, for a few decades. I don't think there's going to be any changes anytime soon. We know that we can break up the stones with any kind of laser, so I'm not sure.
0: Moving on a little bit to imaging. In the United States, you, know, you go into an emergency room in the United States, if you have a toenail pain, you'll get a PET scan, basically. And so, <laughs> you know, CT scan is clearly our go-to. Images for ultrasound, you know, ultrasound imaging is getting incredibly sharp and very accurate. Any changes in imaging? Let us say first, in, maybe in the diagnosis of renal colic, like when they first present to the emergency room, and then maybe talk about or touch on what might be required or what still should be in the recommendations for considering treatment uh, for patients. In other words, what do I need to really give a patient a thorough discussion of risks, benefits, complications of a certain treatment.
1: Yeah, and that remains a very important topic. And we all know the 2014 paper that demonstrated that ultrasound did not miss more diagnoses than CT that was sufficient. It was point-of-care ultrasound versus radiology ultrasound versus a non-contrast CT. And they demonstrated that they have so much more radiation with CT versus uh, ultrasound. But if they went into the data deeper, they identified that only 8 or 9% of those patients had a good low-dose CT. And I think this is an important message. From a diagnosis point of view for the renal colic, ultrasound is still in the guidelines. That's true. But in all honesty, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to have ultrasound as an only diagnostic imaging modality for renal colic. Because with ultrasound, you can see the bladder, the UVJ, you can see the kidney and the UPJ, but anything in between, you cannot. So there is a very large part of the ureter that you cannot see. There's a high likelihood of any stone being in there rather than in the UPJ or the UVJ. And there's a lot of information that you cannot get from an ultrasound that you need, in my opinion, and I think the guidelines' opinion, to guide yourself towards a certain treatment. For that, I do think that you need a CT, albeit a low dose CT. But you'll get the hardness, the stone density. You'll get the actual stone size or volume, which you'll never get with an ultrasound. Ultrasound can be can be misleading for, for stone size for sure. And in the ureter, you'll just not see the stone. The skin to stone density, you won't have that with an ultrasound either. You could say you can add a KUB to that. But if you have a Good, low-dose CT. I think the radiation dose for a good, low-dose CT may be similar to an x-ray KUB. So I think that obviates the need for a KUB. In my opinion, and I think the guidelines do agree on that, a CT is necessary before any kind of treatment because you need all that data to discuss it with your patient.
0: It's not a contrast
1: CT. It's a low dose.
0: Sure. Do you insist on your patients going prone or not necessarily important? For the CT? Yes.
1: I'm a supine PCNL surgeon, so I don't think it's important for me. Uh, There is some data demonstrating that if you put your patient prone, you have a better idea of your anatomy when they are in prone. But then you would also have to bolster your patients uh, as they would be bolstered during a PCNL. And I don't think it makes sense to do that for every stone patient who comes into the ER. Once you're planning a PCNL and you like to do that in prone and it, it may help you, why not? If you're going to do a follow-up CT, sure, but I don't think it's a necessity.
0: Okay. We'll move on to maybe some post-operative guidelines. The metabolic evaluation continues to be one of these topics that, you know, I think a lot of people say, why? What are we doing if we're just going to give calcium and diuretics and some, you know, alkalinization? How many is too much? Uh, How many, uh, how few is too few? Uh, How often do we do them? Are there any changes coming up in the metabolic evaluation of patients after the STONE treatments are administered? Uh,
1: so so far, I don't think we had any changes towards who would be a good candidate for a metabolic workup. And I personally am a very strong advocate of doing a lots of metabolic workups. And if we look at the guidelines, EAU, AUA, you name it, they, they kind of all agree to that, to who should get a metabolic workup. And basically it's a lot shorter list on who shouldn't get it, which means any adult patient who has a first stone that's calcium oxalate monohydrate that doesn't have any comorbidities, yeah, don't bother necessarily doing a metabolic workup unless the patient is really interested and wants to put in all the work of doing that. But all the other patients probably do deserve a metabolic workup. Definitely kids, definitely calcium oxalate dihydrate stones and any other kind of stone patients who have a lot of metabolic uh, or other abnormalities, have a gastric bypass, have diabetes, I think they deserve a metabolic workup because I do like to tailor the treatment to the patient. It's easy to give all the patient potassium citrate or thiazides, but all of these medical treatments may have side effects as well. So I think it's fair to offer them a tailored treatment. We did change the guidelines quite a bit in the past few years on that metabolic workup, and especially uh, the tailored treatment. We have quite a nice flowchart on that, I find. Okay, great.
0: great. An area that, in the United States anyway, is a, a very common topic for litigation mm-hmm. and malpractice and, and so on is preoperative cultures, infection, sepsis, et cetera. What do the guidelines, and I guess I bring this up really more for emphasis because I don't think these guidelines mm-hmm. will ever change unless there's very convincing data to support the contrary, but what, what is your emphasis and what do you really want to emphasize about guidelines uh, requiring, uh, or just talk about cultures, just talk about infection, preoperative yeah. cultures, intraoperative yeah sampling, exactly. all those things. Maybe talk on that for a little bit.
1: Sure. So I think any urological procedure where you enter urological tract, those patients deserve a preoperative urine sample because there are so many patients who have asymptomatic bacteriuria. And if you know the bacteria beforehand, you may tailor your prophylaxis to that or be very early with treating them if they develop any infection after the procedure. So having a urine sample beforehand is completely non-invasive. It's the easiest bio-sample to get from a patient, really. It comes out of their body anyway. You just have to collect it and analyze it. So there is, to me, zero threshold to have a urine sample. Any patient undergoing any urological treatment for stones and the guidelines reflect that as well. Also, urological infections guidelines from the EU reflect that. Having said that, though, there is some data supporting that a urine sample before does not make any difference if you're giving prophylaxis anyway because the infection rate is that low after shockwave or flexible hydroscopy. That comes from the the infection guidelines and it's not in their guidelines either because they still support taking urine sample beforehand probably because it's so easy. But that is only one sample that we can take Especially when we're doing PCNL flexible ureteroscopy and in patients who had a stent beforehand, it's important to have a sample from the kidney or even from the stone to send for analysis. And that will be reflected in the new uh, guidelines, the 2024 EU guidelines, that those samples may guide you better than a preoperative sample in treating patients who get a urinary tract infection after the procedure, because those samples are uh, relayed better to the bi- bacteria that are found in urine or in uh, hemocultures and patients get septic after such a procedure.
0: If you are fairly confident it's a very hard stone, you think you're dealing with a calcium, whether it be monohydrate, brushite, getting the urine in the renal pelvis for culture, I understand. Is there a role to culture stones that you just think are uninfected? Or is it more tailored to the softer stone in a in a paraplegic with an indwelling Foley catheter, who we yeah. highly suspect a struvite stone? What what's the utility of, not utility, but what's the direction of culturing stones?
1: Yeah, I fully agree. The data doesn't reflect that sufficiently yet to subdivide those. At least the guidelines don't do that yet. But I agree. If you have a solitary two centimeter calcium oxalate monohydrate stone in a patient who's never had an infection has a negative preoperative urine sample, I may obviate, I, I may not send a sample of the stone for analysis, but as long as we don't have the data, we can not confidently say that we shouldn't. But you're right, especially in the patients who have a very high risk of getting an infection, Patients with indwelling catheters, patients with known struvite stones, carbonate apatite stones, those patients for sure I would send a sample. So the guidelines do say to send the sample, but I'm, I'm I'm sure we can we can agree on that it's not necessary for all, although we do advocate
0: it. Sure, uh, Thomas. Just to wrap up, are there any things that I'm missing that uh, you want to touch on, or that, are there any surprises or big shakeups and the uh, guidelines that uh, our audience should know about uh, other than the things we've touched on?
1: One thing that we recently added to our guidelines is a follow-up schedule for patients after procedure. And I think that may be useful because some of my Colleagues don't see a patient ever again after a patient had a third stone. And some people would see a patient who had one stone for 10 years with ultrasound you need, and even CTs. And I think it was a, was a fair uh, step to provide some guidance on how to follow up patients. And, and we have a short schedule that goes for about five years. There's nothing after those five years, as we often see in guidelines. And this is just considering that nothing changes in those five years, obviously. If something changes, of course, you have to change whatever you're doing for the follow-up of your patients. You may need a new metabolic workup. The patient may need a new treatment. And the follow-up changes, obviously. This is just to guide patients and guide clinicians in how to follow up their patients. That's one. And something that you will not find in our guidelines but has been reflected in the pediatric zone guidelines is that the threshold for... PCNL, flexible radiography for kids, has gone down significantly. Before the EAU guidelines demonstrated that a kid first line is almost always shockwave lizard ripsy for stones up to two centimeters. But I think with flexible scopes being very, very small right now, and with the, uh, with the mini PCNL coming up as it's, as it's coming up right now, very small tracks, very efficient lasers. Kids are being treated with flexible and PCNL for smaller stones than that. 1.5 centimeters, I think, deserves a PCNL because even for a shockwave with the ripsy, kids are gonna go to sleep. So if you're gonna use a narcosis, I would say use it wisely and do the most efficient procedure.
0: Fantastic. Well, Thomas, I can't thank you enough for joining us. This is Dr. Thomas Tai, a consultant urologist from University Hospital in Ghent, Belgium, talking to us about some of the EAU guidelines for stone disease. Again, I thank you and look forward to seeing you. Same here. Thanks for the opportunity. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Journal of Endourology and the Endourological Society, I thank you for listening today and hope you can tune into the next podcast.